Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I'm Colin McEnroe. You're about to hear another episode of Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, where I think we have reached peak we can't possibly keep up with stuff because we were making this show in real time, but we kept running into things like, I don't know, Lev Parnas introducing us to Robert Hyde and crazy Marie Yovanovitch plots and Mitch McConnell trying to restrict press access to the impeachment trial. But we did our best. We have great guests talking in particular to Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Wittes, who have written, I think, the book right now on the dysfunction of the Trump presidency. So we have more to come right after this news. Painters painted houses. <laughs> what did I know? I was a working guy, a business agent for Teamster Local 107 out of South Philly. One of a thousand working stiffs. Until I wasn't no more. And then I started painting houses myself. The President of the United States, in using appropriated funds enacted in a bipartisan way by this Congress, funds that were meant to help the Ukraine fight the Russians. The President considered that his private ATM machine, I guess, and said he could say to the President, do me a favor. Do me a favor. Do you paint houses too? What is this? Do me a favor. So we have a situation that is very sad. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. While the House of Representatives is exhibiting to the Senate of the United States, Articles of impeachment against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. Article 1, Abuse of Power. Using the powers of his high office, President Trump solicited the interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, in the 2020 United States presidential election. Article 2, Obstruction of Congress. Donald J. Trump has directed the unprecedented, categorical, and indiscriminate defiance of subpoenas issued by the House of Representatives pursuant to its sole power of impeachment. President Trump thus warrants impeachment and trial, removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit 
under the United States. Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of Donald John Trump, President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws? So help you God. So Madam President, the House's hour is over. The Senate's time is at hand. It's time for this proud body to honor our founding purpose. Wow. That was a great montage done by Jonathan McNichol, one of our producers here at Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. I'm Colin McEnroe. That's what you're listening to right now. We have a great show for you. But first of all, I want to say, yeah, the week began, or at least earlier in the week, you had Nancy Pelosi quoting Robert De Niro. I mean, amazing from the Irishman. And then you had a lot of pomp and circumstance as befits an impeachment process. But at the end of the week, it got a little show busy again. President Trump named his impeachment team. Guess who? Alan Dershowitz, Ken Starr, and he already has Pam Bondi, the former Florida attorney general who you may remember declined to join a prosecution against Trump University after she got a campaign donation from the Trump Foundation. And so it's clear he doesn't have pomp and circumstance and formality in mind. He has impeachment apprentice in mind. He's every few days he's going to fire one of them. You know, Alan Dershowitz, you're fired. Go back to Martha's Vineyard. I think the other thing we know is that news stories will just keep appearing. Whether there are hearings or not, this week, the General Accounting Office, a nonpartisan agency, said that President Trump broke the law in the way that he handled the Ukraine money. Ukraine announced that it is investigating the possible stalking of Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch. You have all this Lev Parnas stuff, Robert F. Hyde right here in Connecticut. So much of it is just coming out. It's going to change the face of the process every single day. Anyway, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to start with a conversation with a musician, Lara Herskovich. She has a new album coming out called Highway Philosophers. She wants to talk about how musicians react to troubling times like these. You'll hear one of her new songs, You, USA, in this talk. So I just last night saw the movie 1917, which is about World War I. And there comes a moment where one of the characters comes upon a really large group of British soldiers who are in the woods gathering, and they're going to be marching into one of those horrible World War I battles in a matter of minutes. But what's happening is that they are all sitting silently while one of them stands and sings that old song, I am a poor wayfaring stranger. Mm-hmm. It feels like the right thing to do at that moment mm-hmm. because one of the ways we use music is for, I don't know, well, maybe you could comment on how we use music. I mean, there's a really wide range, I think, of the purpose that music serves. Mm-hmm. And there's something about these troubled times, if you will, that I feel very deeply are reminding us of the importance of coming together in song, whether it's to be reassured, whether it's to be, I mean, there's a long list of sort of purposes that music would serve. I think in that moment, mm-hmm. it's it's a moment of mustering courage, mustering spirit, mustering connection. And it can also obviously be used to be a tool of confrontation, of awareness raising, or of entertainment, of distracting, of laughing, of experiencing joy, of being reminded of the wide range of human experience. We are underestimated, undeterred, here to stay. Pins in the rafters from the rally yesterday. 
It's an interesting moment of, of history right now, too. So I've been a professional musician for almost 20 years. We're a little more woke now, mm-hmm. generally speaking. I mean, I'm in the new folk Americana singer-songwriter space, and a lot of my audiences are smart, thoughtful white people. And what I'm finding is they're no longer, thank God, they're no longer surprised to hear about the problems of America that they weren't as aware of before this administration had been doing such a successful job waking up white supremacy and revealing the kinds of underlying problems in our social fabric that have always been there, but we privileged white folk have not always been as aware of them as we maybe you could argue should have been, but at least we're, we're here now. So we're very happy today to have guests whom we have coveted for quite some time. Benjamin Wittes, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, editor-in-chief of Lawfare, analyst for MSNBC, and the co-author with the next person I'm going to mention of Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. The next person I'm going to mention is, in fact, Susan Hennessy, senior fellow at Brookings, executive editor at Lawfare, analyst for CNN, and the co-author of Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful office. So Susan Hennessy, I'm going to have you begin by maybe just talking about what I take to be the premise of your book, of your op-ed in the New York Times this past week, one of the things that you're looking at, which is that in some fairly unique way, Donald Trump has converted the presidency from a position of service to the people, to the Constitution, to the nation, and into what you guys call a personal and expressive presidency or a personal and expressive way of conducting the affairs of the presidency. Say a little bit more about what you mean by that. Yeah, so we started with a premise in this book that Donald Trump really was putting an actual vision of the American presidency on the table. And it was a vision that we should take seriously. And as we sort of examined the specific deployments of presidential power through the lens of sort of what is Trump's vision of this office, I think the core thing that emerged for us was this absence of civic virtue and the sense that Trump's vision of how this office functions is that it primarily should serve the interest of the president and that it serves the interests of the public only sort of as an afterthought or coincidentally or when it's convenient. And that that sort of small change, a difference that is not a violation of an express constitutional principle that really is just a difference in in worldview and of understanding of the purpose of the presidency, that core change alters the office itself, alters the way we interact with the presidency, 
alters the way the president uses the executive powers across lots and lots of different metrics. And so the Ukraine scandal that we're seeing play out right now is, is a particularly good example of that. The president is vested with foreign policy powers. The president is vested with overseeing the investigative agencies of the United States. And whenever a president uses those powers that are indisputably within what he's allowed to do for his own purposes, rather than in a genuine vision of what's best for the country, that warps things in really profound ways. Yeah. And I thought one of the interesting points that you made about that particular thing, Benjamin Wittes, is the way in which some of the norms that President Trump have violated are norms which, if had they been adhered to, would have saved him some trouble. And, and we can use Ukraine as an example. So one of the chapters of your book is basically about what is a presidential decision? What are the components of it? And, and what's the process by which a presidential decision is reached? And that usually requires quite a bit of consultation. You have experts who are consulted who can talk about probable outcomes and then the decision tree that branches out from some of those outcomes. What are we going to do if this happens? What are we going to do if that happens? Are we doing something legal or illegal? And his White House, his administration seems to consist heavily of either positions that aren't staffed at all or people who are there in acting positions or people who are his relatives and the people who are there who are core professionals who might fit the description of people you would consult with are people he doesn't choose to consult with because he's expressive and instinctual. But one of the points you make, Benjamin Wittes, is had he done all that stuff with Ukraine, he could have put a, a nicer envelope around the card he was playing. Yeah. So if you start at the beginning of the republic, the presidency looked like a virtuous version of the Trumpian presidency. And the reason is that presidents didn't really have any staff. And so George Washington kind of had to do things himself. And we quote a passage of a biography of John Adams where he's basically doing all the work, right? He's sitting at home in Quincy, Massachusetts when his wife is sick and he's answering thousands of letters himself and giving orders for how a lighthouse is to be built, right? All these things that we associate with the broader executive branch were originally done by the president himself. And over time, the executive branch grows up for two reasons. One is that it is actually impossible for the president to run everything himself. And so you develop these cabinet agencies that become staffed with people who do the things. The second reason is to have processes and systems to advise the president so that matters only reach the president for decision when they are actually important enough for the president to decide them himself. Also that when he has to make a decision, he is exquisitely well informed of all of the different equities. And all of that we assume to be the way the presidency functions. But it's actually, and this is the part where the expressive presidency really sort of jumps out of the closet and says, boo, it's all voluntary. Right? And if the president actually prefers to just shoot from the hip, he gets to do that. If he just prefers to say, OK, we're going to kill Soleimani now or we're going to withdraw from Syria because I just had a conversation with Erdogan and he asked me to, he gets to do that. He gets to jettison all of these processes when he feels like it. And the Ukraine scandal is a good example of this. We expect that foreign policy is going to be conducted by foreign policy professionals who will advise their 
higher-ups who will then maybe advise the president. And when the president gets on the phone with the president of Ukraine, he is going to say the things that U.S. policy has represented. And obviously, he's in charge of that, but he's also guided by that. What we don't expect is for the president to ignore all the talking points he's given that his process is created and just say, hey, I really want you to do me a favor. Could you investigate my presidential opponent? But there's nothing that actually stops that. And so the point is that we've built up this process presidency through history because it works. But one thing it doesn't work that well at is expression and what we call the vanity plate elements of the presidency. And those are the things that Trump really, really cares about. That gets back to one of the other themes you've already mentioned in the context of Daniel Dresner's toddler-in-chief thread. Not only are his staff often as likely to thwart him as to aid him, but they often treat him as this out-of-control toddler in, in Pottery Barn just pulling stuff off the shelves. They're trying to save the world from him without him knowing it. And so there's a really interesting thing that you cite in the book in 2018, he's about to go to a NATO meeting. And John Bolton, John Bolton, much in our minds these days, and for the first time ever, a force for moderation, is in his official capacity trying to get a NATO communique ironed out before the president gets there so that the president can't trash it or monkey wrench it. And he's trying to do it without the president knowing it. That's another pattern that you guys describe in the book, right? Right. In the formal structure of the the United States government, the president manages the executive branch. In the reality of the Trump administration, the executive branch tries to manage the president. And the brilliance of Dan Dresner's toddler-in-chief thread, which for those listeners who have never seen it, it is now more than 1,100 tweets long, and each tweet is a clip of a news article in which somebody close to the president is talking about managing him the way you would manage a very small child. And each one, Dan writes on it, I'll believe the president is growing in his office when his staff stops talking about him like a toddler. When you look at the scope and scale of this thread of just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of incidents in which people are saying things like once he goes upstairs and turns on the television, there's no controlling him or compares their own role to that of daycare, you realize the sort of tricks associated with parenting of small children are very much at the front of people's minds in terms of how they deal with him. And some of those tricks involve deceit, and some of those tricks involve deception, and some of those tricks involve praise and coaxing. None of them are things that we associated with staffing the president of the United States. We cite a bunch of examples in the book. Reporters have discovered over the years of staff removing documents from his desk secretly to try to prevent him from signing them, of, as you described, John Bolton trying to pre-engineer the NATO communique so that Trump doesn't show up and blow it up, of people using his schedule to try to prevent him from meeting with people, you know, all of these things that you would associate with the manipulation of a child or a, just an incompetent person, all being used as part of the day-to-day -day operations of the presidency. 
and being used that way quite unapologetically. You know, it's not like people are ashamed of what they're doing. And of course, most famously, one senior administration official even wrote an op-ed in the New York Times anonymously about it, which he or she then turned into a book. This is a day-to-day -day feature of the Trump presidency. And one thing we try and take seriously in the book and to be clear about is this might sound like good news if you're someone who doesn't want the United States to impulsively withdraw from important trade agreements or if you do not happen to agree with the president's particular policy whims that day. It can feel like a source of relief thinking, okay, at least there's someone in the room Room that can take the letter off of his desk. The problem is, is that this is democratically corrosive stuff. And so whenever we think about the presidency as an office that changes over time and that the manner in which various presidents conduct themselves changes the nature of the office, these are not habits that we want to see cultivated in the executive branch. And so it is really difficult to be disciplined and think about, well, here's what might be a positive thing sort of as a policy matter or as a national security matter, or even just as a matter of the objective national interest. But whenever we're thinking about structural roles and democratic accountability and how we want to see the president interact with the executive branch and with other branches, this is something that we should be worried about. We should be worried about the president's accusations of a deep state, which of course are false, becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy over time. That is not something that you want to see in a healthy democracy. By the way, we're talking to, if you're just tuning in, Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Wittes. They are the authors of Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. It's a book that comes out in a couple of days. So one of the things that I think you bring up that's really interesting is that certain theorists of the presidency, starting with Hamilton, would say that you want the presidency to be nimble. You want the president to be able to be a fairly unfettered actor who can get stuff done, who will not be a king, but will have the ability to act in a fairly unencumbered way. And that's part of the genius of the way the office is designed. The problem is that the checks on the office have to be there too. It seems as though we're running into a situation now where the checks don't work. I'd like to say you were right. Right, except I think the problem is worse than you just described. <laughs> First of all, let's start with the checks that Hamilton imagined because the failure of those are really almost complete. So the big protection that Hamilton imagined, and you're going to laugh when I say this because it so doesn't work, is the Electoral College. Because Hamilton imagined he was very proud of the Electoral College and his vision was that you would elect these people who would come together and then indirectly by electing these people, they would choose a president and that would operate as a bulwark against the possibility that the masses might choose a demagogue. The Electoral College now operates in precisely the opposite fashion. The masses, the majority did not choose this demagogue. The majority was wise to this situation. The Electoral College, which has become this automatic distribution of small state power, chose over the majority will precisely the sort of figure that the Electoral College was in fact designed to keep out. Moreover, the founders did not imagine party government. 
and the role of political partisanship in maintaining Trump's power has denuded the impeachment process of a lot of its power and threat, has really kneecapped a fair bit of congressional pushback against encroachments that he's engaged in, and has facilitated a lot of the expressive features of the presidency. So if you cannot rely on Congress to say, no, it is not okay for the president to behave that way. But instead, the House of Congress controlled by the president's party will function, no matter how outrageous his conduct, as a support base for it. Then you have really eroded some of the presuppositions of the separation of powers system. You end up putting an immense amount of stress on two features of the constitutional arrangement. One is the possibility of re-election. And if you think about the future of the American presidency, the amount that turns on what happens nine, ten months from now in November is extreme. And the second, which is, of course, a creature of the 20th century, not of the founding, is the two-term limit on the presidency. And so we end up putting immense weight on these constitutional features, some of the other features that the founders created to make sure the presidency was both nimble and able to act quickly and decisively, nonetheless has real checks upon it. Some of those features really didn't work. I think all of us feel that right now, that it doesn't work. Although, as we're speaking, there are some indications now that there are Republicans in the Senate who are uncomfortable with Mitch McConnell's earlier assertion that he would work in lockstep with the presidency to get through the impeachment process. So, Susan Hennessy, it does seem as though there are some people there within this broken-looking system who are maybe less comfortable with brokenness than some of the prime movers like President Trump and Senator McConnell. I think we see, you know, the stirring of a number of members of Congress who are cognizant of their own institutional equities and the role of preserving institutional equities as a critical part of the separation of powers. And so while they might be willing to subvert their institutional equities for partisan reasons in lots and lots of circumstances, the stakes here are just really, really high. And so either for genuine reasons of conscience and that they've sworn an oath of office and that they play an important role in our constitutional function or for political reasons that they want to be perceived as fair and sort of reasonably nonpartisan in, in making these judgments because before their constituents, that they are sort of attempting to ensure that there are actually witnesses who are called and that there's the perception of sort of procedural legitimacy. All that said, it's still extraordinarily, overwhelmingly unlikely that the president will actually be convicted and removed from office. So that doesn't mean that this is a failed impeachment. So one sort of interesting feature that we've seen emerge over the course of, of American history is that failed impeachments are the precedent of impeachments, that all impeachments and all previous impeachments have been failed impeachments, meaning being impeached without actual removal, and that that itself is still a very, very important constraint, that it really matters whenever the House of Representatives says, we are defining this 
conduct as impeachable conduct. We're sending a message not just to this president, but to all future presidents that this is the kind of thing that will get you impeached. And, and we're putting a marker down and we're saying, you know, we draw the line here. And the political ramifications of that seem really, really big right now. But those will diminish over time and the institutional and constitutional implications will actually grow over time and, and I think become increasingly important. Now, all of that said, I think what we have to recognize is that re-election here is ratification and that the ultimate choice before the American people is going to be in November and that we aren't just ratifying or deciding whether or not to ratify the particular policies of Donald John Trump. We are actually ratifying his vision of this office how it should work, what its purpose is for, and who it should serve. And that whenever we look at the history of the American presidency, there are lots of presidents that break norms and do things that, that nobody ever did before. And some of those presidents are just blips, right? They do things and it was that way for a little while and then it kind of springs back and nobody ever tries it again. And sometimes presidents do things and it becomes the new norm. It actually alters the office forever. The mechanism by which we decide whether or not Trump changes to the office are blips or permanent is going to be whether or not he is reelected. And one of the important things to sort of keep in mind, both as we focus on the, the immediate question of impeachment and also, you know, over the next year of the campaign is making sure that we keep those questions clear in our minds and not get overly sort of lost in the weeds of very small sort of policy disputes. And there are larger stakes here. That was Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Wittes, the authors of Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. It comes out Tuesday. We're going to take a break here and come back with more of my conversation with Lara Herskovich and her songs and Slate's Stephen Metcalf. Midnight parking lot, drink up PBR in a paper cup Shooting satellite, you say this night will change our luck We're gonna float away Welcome back. This is Pardon Me. I'm Colin McEnroe. This is a weekly show we do for as long as the quote-unquote impeachment season lasts. We're back with Laura Herskovich. She is, well, a former Connecticut State troubadour. She's a singer, songwriter, poet, and she has a new album. What's the new album going to be called? The new album is called Highway Philosophers. Highway Philosophers. And, and so we're talking a little bit about how artists respond to troubling times. I am a poor wayfaring stranger notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. Mostly, it seems to me, a song that doesn't have some component of hope. 
some component of forward progress is maybe not going to reach as many people. I mean, is that sort of on your mind that there's got to be, you know? Mm. I wrote a song called Angels that's really imagining, inviting people into the conversation. So I know, I think there's room for all of us. The mm. The point is to sort of figure out who, who you are, what resonates for you, tools and techniques, and then express your gifts, express your fine self to the world because we need all of us to, to show up. I remind myself, I don't have to do it all. You don't have to do it all. But we have to show up, hopefully, and do it together. Float on wave, look down at the earth and wave. Saturn is as nice a place as we've ever been. Calling everybody's angels, angels, angels. Maybe they can finally change us, change us. One of the interesting things about the like fire of transformation that this country is going through right now, it could still go lots of different directions, but I choose to believe that our better angels will show up. I'm seeing civic engagement waking up. I'm seeing the remembering that we need to link arms and get it done together, waking up in ways that I haven't experienced before in my entire life time. And so Angels is a song that's imagining, you know, like empathizing with the suffering that's happening, whether that suffering is in an urban center, whether that suffering is in Appalachia, whether it's related to, you know, environmental destruction or economic justice or racism or, you know, the list is very, very long. But calling on everyone's better nature to articulate the values that they care about that help the greater good. We can strong right and wrong Calling everybody's angels Angels, angels Calling everybody's angels Angels, angels Given the focus of this particular show as we try to meld a political process, a governmental process with a set of cultural reactions to that process, it's kind of amazing and almost delinquent that we haven't had Stephen Metcalf on the show yet, but we do now. Stephen Metcalf is the host of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. He is working on a book, a long-awaited book about the 1980s, and he kind of specializes in exactly that kind of Asian fusion dish that we're talking about here. And he recently wrote a piece for the New York Times about why he thinks one of the defining impulses for Donald Trump. One of the ways in which he shaped his early identity was the plight of Jimmy Carter circa 1979. He joins us now through the miracle of Skype. Welcome, Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for having me back, Colin, and I'm happy to help correct this delinquency. (laughs) All right. So in 19... 79. We know that Donald Trump was a swell and he was swanning around and being a bit of a popinjay, as I think you say in your piece, and probably can walk into any club in New York that he wants to. And I think, as you also say, looking forward to future divorces. But what's going on in the world? Remind people what's happening in 79 that might be vaguely getting his attention. Sure. A couple of things. One is that There were several vivid incidents that happened over the course of 1979 that seemed to symbolize 
or capture a culture-wide nervous breakdown that had been gathering, you could argue, since 1968, but had been gaining speed from Watergate on. There was famously the disco riot, a baseball game, and Chicago descends into complete mayhem, right? So the heart of American nostalgia was essentially a gigantic riot after a crate full of disco records is blown up by a, a local disc jockey. I mean, an image of total social breakdown, really. The Bronx's burning happens in 1979. These televised images on Monday Night Football of arson set fires in the Bronx very opposite to this story is in July of 1979, there is a trucker's riot in Leventown, Pennsylvania, protesting the super high price of gasoline in a very typical suburban American community. A bunch of truckers pull into the common five points intersection. They park their trucks in the middle of the intersection, shut down all traffic. One trucker jumps up on his rig and starts delivering a kind of stemwinder speech He's manhandled by the cops, and all of a sudden, mayhem breaks loose. The mayhem includes young teenage rabble-rousers burning things, including torching cars and a sofa. But it also includes ordinary suburban housewives coming out and screaming their heads off. And effectively, at the basis of all of this is really the unprecedentedly high price of gasoline and 1979 preeminently has been described as the year of the gas line. Ordinary Americans, in order to get from point A to point B in their automobile, often had to skip a day. They had to wait till an odd day based on their license plate in order to go get fill up a tank of gas. I remember this. I was in eighth or ninth grade. You had to pull up to a huge, long queue of cars in order to get to the gas pump. There was this general sense that post-war American society, its consumerist nirvana, had washed up on the shoals of kind of a semi-apocalypse. <laughs> oh, no, overstated? Well, no, beautifully put, I think, beautifully put. Well, let's let's catch up with our story. So we should talk about Jimmy Carter as a symbol. I mean, I kind of like this Ernest Becker-type psychoanalyzing that you're, you're doing of Trump because in a way, he's still kind of sorting out his masculinity, you know, and I mean, he's for the most part, sorting it out in a fairly unattractive way. But to whatever extent we look to the president of the United States, who has always been a man, as some kind of expression of masculinity, we're seeing Carter increasingly understood as this kind of Charlie Brown, David Copperfield figure to whom things happen, as opposed to the kind of person who makes things happen. This menu of things that happen to him include like rabbits menacing him in boats and stuff. There's a there's a way in which he's, he is an acted upon figure rather than an actor. And one of the things that you're suggesting is that Trump is watching that process too. No, absolutely. And, and one of the things I tried not to do in the piece was ultimately psychoanalyze Trump. His need to be regarded as hyper-masculine and dominant at all all moments, to me, betrays like a, a neurotic terror of appearing weak or feminized. I mean, it has to be the flip side of that. Why that is, I can't tell you, but there's no doubt in my mind that an aspect of that part of his personality coalesced and became focused on the figure of Carter as a, in Trump's mind, a pathetically feminized and weakened American president. And so a part of this, of course, then does lead us to the Iranian revolution. So kind of set that up for us, too. Sure. So and I, I want to be clear in what I say next is I'm talking about this sort of symbolic valence of the hostage crisis. And I don't in any way mean to trivialize it as a real event 
in which 52 Americans were held against their will in Tehran for 444 days. There was an enormous human cost to it. But to speak a little bit about its symbolic importance, it just seemed to take this society-wide nervous breakdown that was happening in America, our sense that the post-war order internally, but also globally, was deteriorating quickly. And Carter is a feminized or weak, or as you say, passive figure to whom things happened as opposed to an active you know, man of agency. All of it coalesces around the fact that in November 1979, a, a group of student revolutionaries surround, invade, and then finally take over the American embassy in Tehran as part of a revolutionary movement to overthrow the Shah, who is a kind of client dictator ally of the United States. They proceed then to hold that embassy and hold those 52 hostages for well over a year. In an age before cable TV and the internet, this was as omnipresent as a piece of news has ever been in my life. It led the evening news every night. It was on the front page of the paper virtually every day. And as those days began to mount up and mount up and mount up, every predisposition to see Carter as a weakened, passive figure. And it made the Carter presidency essentially an inevitable failure. Right. I I think there's also this sense then, first of all, we should say we are not imagining that this imprinted itself on President Trump's mind because at one point he talked about potentially hitting, what, 52 sites in honor of, if, if that's the right word, of those 52 hostages. Yeah, clearly it was on his mind. I mean, the inciting incident for my piece was the killing of Soleimani. This was an overreaction that appeared to have flabbergasted the military establishment. And the question was, well, why? Why overreact so intensely to this? And Trump essentially gave away the game when he claimed in a tweet that, you know, were the situation to get out of hand, he would target these 52 cultural sites explicitly as a kind of revenge for the 52 hostages. The thing that drove, I think, quite plainly that drove Trump to overreact and kill Soleimani was the surrounding of the American embassy in Baghdad. These chants of death to America, burning of American flags and an embassy looking as though it's suddenly vulnerable to a mob. You don't need to be Donald Trump for these to be evocative of a turning point in the American self-image. And for Trump, they're a massive trigger. Right. No, they should have given him a trigger warning. They should have said, you know, before we do this, President Trump, this is going to remind you of something that really bothered you at the time. And so just, you know, kind of be as ready as you can. So the other part of your piece is also about Carter's famous malaise speech, as it is I think kind of unjustly come to be known, where he was exploring a set of questions, seeing if he could make some kind of dispositive statement that would put the country on a different kind of footing. So say more about that. So in July of 1979, the truckers riot in Pennsylvania has just happened. It horrifies everyone. The White House is aghast that this has happened and feels as though they need to respond to it. For quite a while, months, in fact, there's been an internal battle in the Carter administration over whether the president should deliver a totally policy-driven kind of bullet point memorandum style speech about energy policy, like a major new direction in energy policy, or whether he should deliver a kind of sermon, a kind of secular sermon on the state of the American soul. And the person pushing for the uh, sermon is a young operative at the DNC named Patrick Cadell, who's become obsessed with a book called The Culture of Narcissism, which was a huge bestseller in 1979, which purported to be a kind of both a clinical diagnosis of the deterioration of the American character, but also a kind of almost modern day Puritan Jeremiah 
about who and what we'd become as a, as a people. And Cadell is enraptured by the book, though there's no evidence he actually read it. He read about it in Time magazine. But he loves the thesis, and one of the words that its author, Christopher Lash, uses malaise. And so Cadell, for reasons I think that have more to do with his own self-advancement and his own really quite cold political calculus, thinks that Carter ought to deliver a speech that addresses this sense of spiritual lostness of the American people. And the trucker riot is the final thing that throws Carter over the edge, and he decides to book the time on the networks and deliver what's become called the Malaise speech, even though Carter himself never actually uses that word. Right. And so the Malaise speech is, as you say, an attempt to talk about energy policy, but it's also an attempt to talk about how people are feeling about why there is this kind of collective loss of faith or loss of spine. And as you say, Carter is notably a very deliberative, thoughtful person. He's, as you point out, you know, influenced by Reinhold Niebuhr. So he thinks about human activity partly in terms of mortal limitations and things like that. And in a way, maybe he isn't the right guy to talk to a nation that's already kind of wondering if it collectively is Charlie Brown. Yes, exactly. I mean, in one sense, he was exactly the right person because here he is a Southern Baptist. He was elected for his supposed simplicity and piety. He was the antidote to Nixon and to Watergate. And he, at moments in his presidency, enjoyed enormous popularity for being just this sort of plain spoken, trustworthy, believable figure. And secondly, was he entirely wrong? I mean, looking back on it from the standpoint of 2020 and climate change, his prescription was really to rein in our overconsumption and stop seeking meaning solely within the confines of a consumer society. Those seem like pretty good pieces of advice. And among the many things misremembered about the speech is not only did he not say the word malaise, the speech was overnight a hit. I mean, immediately the press thought it was a kind of masterpiece of rhetorical courage. And he got an 11-point bump in the polls. But as the hostage crisis kicked in, the malaise speech became a symbol of Carter's impotence. And it's over time been wrapped around his neck. So we wind up with these two competing versions of masculinity, one of which Carter embodies and the other of which Trump embraces. So the Carter version, interestingly, is a kind of quiet strength. I mean, I'd like to point out that among any recent president that I can think of, I mean, Jimmy Carter is the only person I would trust around a group of power tools. I mean, the only one who who actually, you know, has known working blisters, to use Elvis Costello's phrase, a guy who can build a house, swing a hammer, do all this kind of really er male stuff, you know, do, do it in a quiet way, not need to call attention to himself. And so that kind of sort of Gary Cooper, quiet, strong cowboy guy is more there in him. And then the bluster the false strength, the quick resort to very flashy forms of violence, either over weaker opponents or in situations where you don't really risk your own physicality, basically Biff the bully and back to the future. You know, I mean, that's kind of the one that Trump embraces. And he seems to be doing it in a very reactive way. Like you're saying he doesn't want to be Jimmy Carter. I think the other person he doesn't want to be is Barack Obama, who was also that guy, right? Didn't need to be super noisy about it. Had a kind of strength that wasn't a loud strength. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, what's going to happen to American masculinity when 
algorithms, robots, and drones take <laughs> over all of the traditional masculine pursuits, right? When masculinity goes from being a highly integrated feature of a functioning economy so that its productivity is on display all the time to being a anachronism, it expresses itself symbolically and aggressively and through overcompensation. And I think it's no accident that at a moment of general crisis in American masculinity, a blustering fool who evaded military service because of bone spurs is able to cast aspersions on men like John McCain and Carter, who did actually serve, who know what actual physical courage is like. And as you say, other men who actually have worked with their hands or accomplished something in the traditional masculine way, which Trump never has, and yet get away with it. I mean, that to me is the most remarkable thing. It must be that masculinity, A, is in crisis generally, and B, as one expression of that crisis, is going from being actual and pragmatic to symbolic and performative. It's not clear to me where that line points to, but nowhere nowhere not dark. <laughs> so I just want to point out to you that until the robots become self-aware and slay their masters, people will own the robots. And the people who own the robots and the AIs and all this kind of stuff, they're, they're still going to say, well, I'm raising my robots to build houses for the poor. That's not what my robots are for. So you'll still need the equivalent of Jimmy Carter to go out there and swing a hammer. So let me bring up a slightly grim scenario in the next few months, which, and I, I hate to do it, but Jimmy Carter's not well. I mean, he's just amazing resilient. He and Ruth Bader Ginsburg are the people who just, you know, bounce back all the time. First of all, when he dies, he's going to have the Baptist equivalent of the Assumption of Mary, right? I mean, the entire world. This is the guy who defeated the Guinea Worm, as he always called it, the Guinea Worm. You know, you sort of wondered, I mean, Trump didn't handle McCain's funeral well. What would Carter's funeral be like? We can only imagine how Trump will bungle it and disgrace himself in the process. And not be, and not be invited to it. Yeah, well, that's true, too. So he'll tweet as it's going on. It's interesting to think about how people's public image and persona shifts over time according to the shifts in public mood. You know, really what we need to believe about a person at a given moment. And so, you know, this kind of chorus of relief that Nixon is gone and this mass projection of hope onto Carter as a kind of savior as it turns into a total symbolic utter defeat and to the point where it becomes a generational symbol for political defeat. I mean, the Republicans, we should say, have been running against Jimmy Carter for whatever it is now, close to 40 years. They've held up Carter as a symbol of the total failure of liberalism, falsely in my view. Over time, Carter patiently, quietly, without courting the limelight, has done the actual work of being a Christian. And over time, I think the public has come around to him and now sees him as a man who lives his principles and, and sees him in contradistinction to every president, really, to some degree. And when he goes, it's going to be interesting to see how divergent the responses of the American public and, the as you say, the global public will be to that man's life. And this one person, this one nasty public dissenter will be there two thumbs blazing on Twitter trying to counteract it, and he will fail. This is a good place to end, but let's hear kind of the other side of that conversation. This is Stephen Colbert asking Jimmy Carter if he prays for Trump. You pray a lot. Um, do you pray for Donald Trump? I pray that he'll be a good president and that he'll keep our country at peace mm -hmm. and uh, that he'll refrain from using nuclear weapons mm -hmm. and that he will promote human rights. Do you think your prayers are being answered so far? 
Well, uh, we used to have a pastor who would say, when you pray, God has three answers. One is yes, the other one is new, no, and the third one is you've got to be kidding. <laughs> so I'm not sure which one it is yet. <laughs> that was Stephen Metcalf. Actually, well, no, it was Jimmy Carter right at the end. But before that was Stephen Metcalf. He's the host of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. We're going to end the show this week with the final bit of our conversation with Lara Herskovich. Her forthcoming album is Highway Philosophers. The new song you'll hear here is called Rise. Thank you so much for listening today. It's also kind of interesting, you know, all of us are different ages, so I did grow up kind of in the late 60s, early 70s. There was a lot of, you know, very kind of iconic protest singing that was going on. You're a little younger than I am, and then there are people who are way younger now than either one of us. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to watch what's happening there, too, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm very inspired, as I know lots and lots and lots of other people are leaders that I talk to about the millennial generation, the Gen Z generation, and that they're understanding that we have to show up. Like, I think we got complacent. And when I say we, I mean humans in America and across the globe, for sure. And I think what this younger generation, not to generalize, but I'm about to generalize, is they realize that we still have to show up and fight for it. If you can open someone's heart and then deposit some of that information or deposit a bridge from heart to heart, it's mm. it's a really powerful position to be in. And it's an honor to do it. So it's it's um, I'm glad that music is coming back into favor in that way that people are turning to it. I also feel like culturally we, uh, like we have forgotten how to be neighbors. We've forgotten how to come together in community. And I notice in my concerts anyway, I can't speak for other genres, but in the new folk singer-songwriter, like folk music Americana space, People come together and it's 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 like a house of faith in that way where just neighbors are talking to neighbors and we're reminding ourselves that we're not isolated and it can be a really powerful tool of healing and connection as well in that way. That, again, was singer and songwriter and poet Laura Herskovich. That's our show. Another episode of Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show is ready to go to sleep and wake up and turn into episode eight. I'm Colin McEnroe. This show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McNichol. Thanks this week to Kyone Wolf and our executive producer, boss person, Katie Tularski. I should memorize titles, but I haven't. So far, we're on Connecticut Public Radio on Saturdays at noon, but who knows? Things change all the time. Mitch McConnell might say, You people have to be on at a different time from now on because I don't like it at noon. It bothers me. I like, wait, wait, don't tell me, and then I just take a nap. So who knows? We may be on at a different time. You can always find Pardon Me on your favorite podcast place. And thanks, thanks, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.